The Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Numbers, chapter 12. While they were at Hazaroth, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had indeed married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more so than anyone else on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. When there are prophets among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. Not so with my servant Moses. He is entrusted with all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud went away from over the tent, Miriam had become leprous, as white as snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam and saw that she was leprous. Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us for a sin that we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like one stillborn whose flesh is half consumed and when it comes out of its mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, please heal her. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp for seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut out of the camp for seven days, and the people did not set out on the march until Miriam had been brought back in again. After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. While Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and said to them on the way, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And then they will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and on the third day he will be raised. Then the mother mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, this is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard it, they were angry with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, 
and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on this story that, um, that is old, <laughs> that may feel strange at points and uses language and metaphor that can leave us feeling profoundly uncomfortable, would you help us to know how we might understand it and how we might be a community and really individuals that uh, pull it into our own lives and that we would embody some of the truth that is here in this space of revelation. Meet us, we ask, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, amen. So uh, this fall, as we've said over and over again, we're looking at the wilderness journey of Israel uh, following release from a space of slavery. And one of the things that uh, Chris has been very careful to point out over the last few weeks is that we think of wilderness really differently in our cultural moment. Like some of us like to go hike in the desert. Some of us like the challenge of survival in a wilderness space. Um, uh, some of you might even sign up for those REI adventures, but that's not the way the scriptural story is using this metaphor and this experience, really, of a literal wilderness uh, in the desert. This is a moment when all that is ordinary has been kicked out from beneath Israel. When we experience wilderness in this sense, it's a moment for us as well in which the ordinary life, the normal routines of life are just kicked out from under us. Whether they're routines you particularly liked or didn't like, they're gone. They're no more. And in those moments, very often what happens for us as human beings is we get exposed. It's not just a problem that may exist out there in our lives as it was the case for Israel inside of Egypt, but we begin to see the fault lines interior to our own persons. And so wilderness, we say, is a space in which we can grow up in wisdom we, because we see the darkness. We get exposed in, in ways, but here's the key to sort of growing in wisdom or whether or not you know you're sort of in that trajectory is that you become curious about that which is exposed. You don't judge what's exposed. You don't um, become defensive around what is exposed. You become curious about what you're seeing internal to your own selves in this moment and space of exposure. Last week, Chris looked at that interesting moment when Moses, like the rest of Israel, is caught up into that moment and space of complaint. Only for Moses, the complaint turns really inward, right? He becomes, uh, uh, he, he becomes obsessively concerned about his own inabilities and his limitation as a leader. This week, we're looking still in that space of the inner circle of Israel's leadership in the wilderness, expanding it to look at Miriam, Moses' sister, or Aaron, Moses' brother, all who have held important roles inside of this Exodus space. But here, we begin to understand that their complaint takes this unique form of envy and presumption. And these are the themes that we want to think about as they're exposed in their lives and through their story. So these three things that we want to think about this morning, envy, humility, and grace. Now, envy. Unlike Moses, Miriam and Aaron are not 
obsessed about their not enoughness. Instead, it's quite the opposite. They are quite aware of their enoughness, their giftedness as leaders. And they're envious of Moses' particular role in leadership. So you can imagine this moment in which they begin to feel perhaps overlooked in some way or having less influence than Moses himself. And that is the nature of their complaint. It's envy. Both Miriam and Aaron are celebrated heroes of the Exodus event. Uh, Miriam, if you might remember the Moses story from a very young age, exemplifies leadership really as she watches over Moses' basket in the Nile River or as she sort of makes sure that Moses' mother is then connected to Pharaoh's uh, daughter as the nursemaid. And on and on, her role continues to grow until in that moment of Exodus, she becomes a celebrated poet and musician in her own right, a prophetess. Aaron likewise becomes Moses' mouthpiece. He is an answer of prayer, the prayer that Moses offers to God when he says, I can't speak well. I don't speak well. I can't go to Pharaoh. Aaron is God's answer to Moses' dilemma. Both have exemplified leadership in this space, and here both enter into a complaint and an experience of envy. Miriam opens the complaint. She leads it. She's out in front of it in some way, expressing some form of ethnic privilege and even offense or distaste, perhaps, for Moses's non-Jewish wife, a Cushite, that some scholars suggest would indicate that she was likely a person of color. And the moment we begin to hear that in our own cultural context, we're triggered, right? We begin to think of all of the ways in which you and I are being pushed upon and urged to ask questions about our own implicit bias and the way racism sort of holds our own imagination as we hold aspirations for ourselves and those we love and as we make decisions and judgments about our own life and the world. But whatever ethnic prejudice may have been at play in Miriam's heart and Aaron's heart in this particular moment of their experience of Moses' leadership and its lack, their deeper concern seems to circle around questions of their own identity, their own role, their own influential leadership. And the author, the narrator, situates the core problem in this experience of envy and their presumption. That's the root of their complaint. In verse 2, Miriam asks, hasn't the Lord spoken through us also? And just pause with that rhetorical question because, of course, he had. Think about your own lives this morning when you've thought about your relative power, your relative influence, your relative role of leadership, whatever it is. Haven't you had moments when you've thought, but haven't I done this also? Their experience of envy is not in any way unique to them. The biblical scholar Robert Alter suggests that the narrator grammatically places Miriam out in front of the complaint. She leads it, as it were, and Aaron tags along as a co-signer. Think about their presumption and their envy for just a moment or this challenge of presumption. Thomas Merton puts it this way. He says that as soon as you begin to take yourself seriously and you imagine that your virtues are important because they are yours, you become the prisoner of your own vanity and even your best works will blind and deceive you. Then 
in order to defend yourself, you will see sins and faults everywhere in the actions of others. And the more unreasonable importance you attach to yourself and your own works, the more you will tend to build up your own idea of yourself by condemning other people. Envy is a cancer. It is the cancer of presumption that's showing up inside of this inner circle of leadership. And it's destroying Miriam, it's destroying Aaron, it's destroying the leadership before Israel, it's destroying the community itself. And the narrator just includes God heard it all. Who are we as human beings? We're those before whom God is present, or we are present to him. He sees us, he hears us, everything. He sees all. So the second thing we come to here is the challenge of humility and leadership. The narrator moves from acknowledging that God has heard all that's been said and spoken to this moment when the narrator comments, now Moses was humble, more so than anyone at the time on earth. Now that is a bold statement. You know, of course you're thinking, well, how did he know that? Okay, well, explore that. But the point is what? That Moses was a humble man. So think about humility for a moment. C.S. Lewis says of humility that if you and I, whenever you and I have met really humble persons, they're not the sort of people that are sort of bad-mouthing themselves. They're not people that are sort of falling into that space of self-pity, poor me, you know, I'm a nobody, I'm just here, I'm just a servant, whatever. That's not a humble person, he says. They're not obsessed if you wanna cast it in last week's direction. They're not obsessed with their limits and their not enoughness. There's a sense of greater awareness of God's presence. Lewis goes on and he says, probably all you will think about this person that is humble before you is that he or she seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in you, in what you said when you were with him. It's amazing, isn't it, to think about a life like that. He goes on and says, if you dislike this per humble person, it's because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. Have you ever felt that in the presence of another person? You've just experienced that they live with a sense of flow in their lives and an ease with which they're in front of other people or with you as a person and they attend to you like no one else and you're in your mind just thinking, how do they do that? And what would it be like if I lived with similar freedom? Lewis says that you will, not be, you will not find this person thinking or talking about humility at all. In fact, he will not be thinking about himself at all. Humility. Thomas Merton would add that uh, a person that is of humble character and dimension, that this is a person that possesses the freedom to be precisely the person that they actually are before God and before others. What a beautiful depiction of humility. The humble person doesn't live a life in constant self-reference. They're not constantly looking to take on some other role or some new challenge as a means of defending their identity as a human being, but they have a self. And so they're able to live in the world with themselves as a gift appropriately to all others. 
The humble leader is at home with himself, isn't using the circumstances of his life or her life or the roles that they have opportunity to find themselves within. They're given a self. And God says of Moses, he was like that. He was that kind of a leader, that kind of a human being. And God here defends Moses in this intimate space of conversation between them all. The three of them called out to this space of intimate engagement with God in the tent of meeting. And God says in that moment of defense, well, actually, there is something very different about Moses' friendship with me. It's real. It's present. It's alive. It's active. He says, I speak with Moses face to face, not through dreams and riddles, but more personally, mouth to mouth, my breath upon his breath. And it's a picture of intimacy between God and Moses himself. In other words, Moses's work his inhabitation of this role of prophet and leader inside of Israel is the fruit of his friendship and life with God and not a means by which he would achieve it or seek it. Envy, the challenge of humility. Now, finally, the reality of God's grace. Reality of God's grace is seen from the very beginning because God shows up as one who hears. God hears our thoughts, he hears our words, he sees our predicament in the wilderness, he understands the exposure that's happening. And into that void, when we're most confused about what's happening around our life, God speaks, he engages our dilemma. And we see that here in the tent of meeting. The conversation ends at the tent of meeting and Miriam becomes leprous, white as snow, which may be actually an interesting kind of poetic justice that the narrator inserts given Miriam's earlier ethnic slur. Miriam is then put outside the camp. Now Miriam and Aaron are both caught up in this experience of darkness and death that lay beneath their a complaint, right, of envy and presumption. And almost immediately when I put it that way, you probably are thinking, well, wait, what about Aaron? Isn't Miriam bearing the brunt of this dark grace of God? Aaron here in this latter part of the narrative sees the unfolding death that's encroaching upon Miriam's life his sister, a co-leader, a poet, a prophetess, a person of profound influence in Israel. And all of a sudden it looks and feels to him as if her very being is being erased by this leprous condition that requires that she goes out of the camp, then be put away from uh, God's people and the nearness to them. And all of a sudden Aaron begins to wake up so what's happening? We're told that he confesses his sin. He acknowledges his participation in this complaint of envy and presumption. And he uses this very painful metaphor of a stillborn child. And almost immediately in our context, you read it and you wish, couldn't you have chosen a different metaphor? Because some of you have experienced the pain of the death of a child. You know that horror, that sorrow. And in their own context, certainly, that was a more prevalent understanding and experience of life than is even common to us in our day. It was painful. And we're meant to begin to understand that maybe those who have proximity to that pain understand more of what this story is actually teaching than the rest of us. Aaron wakes up and he confesses 
but he co-signs to a very different storyline, the storyline of God's own self. Aaron turns to Moses' unique life with God and he appeals to him that he would intercede in their behalf, that Moses, for whom God's breath is upon his breath, that Moses would talk to God about this encroaching death. And Moses intercedes and he appeals to God to heal Miriam, to deliver her. And God does relinquish in his judgment and Miriam is promised a restoration amidst this temporary seven day taste of death itself. It's a dark grace, it's a gift. Each week we come into moments in our own life as worshiping persons and we confess our sins and it's a moment when we enter that dark grace. We look into the fault lines of our own lives and the ways we've participated in false narratives, false storylines about what it means to be a human being, what it means to be an image bearer of God. This is why St. Augustine often calls that moment and space of confession a happy fault, which feels incongruent to us whenever we think about our faults and our failures and our disappointments in life. But he called it a happy fault because it is in this space that you and I also wake up more deeply than before to the God who loves us to the God who keeps talking to us, to the God who keeps seeking us, to the God that keeps asking us, where are you? And that is the birthplace of humility. It's the birth of our truest self as those beloved children of God upon whom his favor rests. Our gospel reading this morning, interestingly, reminds us that this struggle with envy has just been common throughout history. And it shows up in the inner circle of the disciples, right, that are gathered around Jesus, who is the most humble person that ever lived on the face of the earth. And in this particular moment, what happens? A mom, she wants the highest honor for her sons, right? She uh, wants her sons to sit on the right and the left of Jesus in his coming kingdom. And of course she wants that. Have you ever met a parent that didn't want more for their children than they had for themselves? I have never met such a parent. You want more for your children. You long for more for your children than you have for yourself. I felt that profoundly in the last four weeks. But here is this moment of this internal moment of leadership. And the mom is just doing what moms do, I think. You know, she just, I want more. And the disciples over here, bits and fragments of the conversation. And almost immediately, where does their mind and their heart go? What about me? What's in this for me? And envy begins to take over the space of the disciples' lives. And Jesus just puts that really simple question, you know, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink from? And he's just been talking about his humility, his humility unto death itself. Can you do that? Can you live with your greatness the way I live with my greatness in the world? As one who gives, as one who leverages it toward others for the sake of others, can you live that way? That's really what Jesus seems to be putting to the mom and to the disciples, to all of them, in which he reminds them that what God is doing in the person of Jesus is he's creating and opening up a way for each of us to live inside of our humanity really differently 
not as persons that are insecure or unsettled about our identity and who we are, but as those who have found ourselves as what? The beloved of God upon whom his favor rests. And the moment you begin to wake up to that reality that that's who you are in the person of Jesus, you and I have the opportunity to live with our own relative greatness and power and leadership differently than before. It's the invitation that Jesus sets before the disciples. Then you pull this further into the New Testament documents and what do you find Paul saying in Philippians 2 as he reflects on this life of Jesus? He says, he was humility incarnate. He didn't grasp at his godness, though he was God. In other words, Jesus keeps living with an open hand around his identity in this world. Although he was God, he didn't grasp at that identity. He doesn't cling to his role or his position. He just was God in person in our world, humbling himself, serving other people, living with his greatness in behalf of others, elevating them, lifting them unto death itself. And God raises him up and he gives him the highest name that is above all names. And the point that we're meant to draw from that is not just that God honors Jesus, but God honors humanity in Jesus. And he says, this is the name that will endure for all time. Why? Because this is what it means to be a human being in the kingdom of God. You live with your relative greatness as one that is utterly secure in the Father's love. And so you live freely as your truest self in the world. God essentially, Paul commenting about this work of God in resurrection and exaltation of Jesus says, this is the reality that will endure for all time. To love as we have been loved. This kind of life is the kind of life that will endure forever. And that is the world that God sets before each of us this morning that he invites us into as we gather to his table in just a moment. It's a moment as we think about what does it mean to live in this wilderness space, this six, seven months of pandemic living that we're all so very weary of. The moment of whatever's going on culturally with elections and the political situation that leaves us feeling a little anxious or uncertain about our hope. The moment that we wake up and we realize that the racial reckoning that's going on just is going to continue to have chapter after chapter until we wake up to its reality differently. The awareness that this life includes a lot of hard things. And sometimes it feels like wilderness just gets piled upon, right? You think you've come through one space of wilderness and someone hurts you yet again. Relational trauma and difficulty. You wake up and there's a call. Hey, your son has a spinal cord injury. You wake up to some other diagnosis. You wake up to some space of relational conflict. Wilderness presses in on our lives in this world. So the question a text like this leaves us if we're to live with hope is just this. What would it look like for you this morning to remember that you are the beloved of the Father upon whom his favor rests. How would that change the way you show up in your space of relative leadership and power and influence?
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.